So let's go ahead and get started. Um, our first speaker is um, the guy you just heard from, is uh, Dr. Henry Mazur, who is at the clinical center at NIH and has um, led the, uh, the service there in critical care for many, many years. Um, Henry's going to talk to us today about something we don't talk about as much anymore, but we still unfortunately need to, and that's what's new in the world of opportunistic infections and in, uh, challenges that we see, especially of people who show up late to care, which at least in our practice we're still seeing, unfortunately. So, Henry. All right, thanks very much, uh, Mike. Opportunistic infections are not as much in the news anymore, but what I'd like to do in the next half hour is just persuade you that opportunistic infections are still important, and then to go over uh, uh, seven items which frequently come up with the guidelines, and many of which were touched on at uh, CROI, uh, and there are some data about some of these topics that uh, we're grappling with in terms of changing the guidelines. I have no financial disclosures. Uh, the objectives uh, uh, you can look at, but really to look at the epidemiologic trends in D.C. related to opportunistic infections, and then to look at some of the common opportunistic infection challenges that we have in 2018. At this conference many years, but not this year, we focus specifically on what the advances are in terms of our HIV epidemic in the city. You're going to hear more about this from Susan Bookbinder uh, very shortly, but I wanted to make a couple of points just to emphasize that we still have a substantial population in this city who are susceptible to opportunistic infections. The good news in this city is the number of new cases has gone down dramatically, and I think that all the providers, all the people from the health care department, uh, the Department of Public Health in the audience today really deserve a tremendous amount of credit for the progress we've made over the last 10 years. And from a high of about 1,100 uh, new cases uh, a decade ago, we're now down to about 350, and we obviously like to uh, have that uh, uh, even lower. The question is, of those 350 new cases, how many are identified when their CD4 counts are low, such that they often come in with opportunistic infections? And I'll ask you to vote on that in a minute. The other question uh, is, how many of those people ultimately are still susceptible to opportunistic infections a year or two years later. In other words, they're not durably virally suppressed, and we'll look at the data on that as well. But I think everybody in this room re recognizes that while the number of new cases in this city goes down, the prevalence in this city is still disastrously high, and in 2015, it was 2.0% uh, for HIV. Admittedly, it's higher for hepatitis C, but it's still dramatically high. And if you look at the proportion of residents who are diagnosed with it, I think everybody is aware of the fact that among blacks, the incidence is, or the prevalence is much higher than whites, Hispanics, or others. And I think, again, that uh, indicates the challenges that we still have in terms of dealing with this epidemic. Now, one of the questions I guess I'd like to ask you is, what do you think the percentage of patients who have known HIV is in D.C. who are virally suppressed? What would you uh, suggest uh, is the uh, percent? How well are we doing getting identified people into care and durably virally, virally suppressed? So let's see what the people have to say. 
All right, well, th that's a pretty good spread, and uh, some people are uh, pretty pessimistic that, uh, um, some people are optimistic, it depends how you look at it. Uh, so uh, the fact is 63% of the people in D.C. Uh, are virally suppressed. So if you look at the uh, data here in 2016, of 12,000 people who were in this particular uh, database, 7,000 are virally suppressed. So 63% is probably not where we'd like to be. I think it just uh, uh, emphasizes the fact that we have a large patient population out there whose CD4 counts are declining, who are gonna be susceptible to opportunistic infections. And especially if you look at younger individuals, it's only 47% who are suppressed. And there are people like Larry D'Angelo who have been working on this uh, for years as to how to get younger people uh, into care and something we're still not uh, as successful with as we'd like to be. The next question is, what percent of persons who are newly diagnosed with HIV, uh, and this is actually over a four-year period from 2011 to 2015, uh, how many of them have a CD4 count under 200? In other words, how many of them are late diagnoses? So why don't you... Scott, we could probably speed these up a little bit. Okay, so again, uh, it's interesting that we have a, uh, uh, a large uh, array of numbers, but if we look at the uh, numbers here, uh, about 21% of individuals who are newly diagnosed uh, uh, actually in this past year and in 2011 to 15 uh, have a CD4 count under 200. And although it's a little hard to see on this figure, What's unfortunate is if you look a year later, 50% of those are still have a CD4 count under 200. In other words, they're not probably uh, on uh, uh, linked to care or virally suppressed. So the point I'm trying to make is there are a lot of people who are not diagnosed until their CD4 counts are low. There are a lot of people who are diagnosed, but a year later still have low CD4 counts. And that means that we have a population in the city that's susceptible to opportunistic infections. And one of the questions is, what opportunistic infections are people getting in 2018? And it's very hard to get data on recent years. So I looked at what a good surrogate was for opportunistic infections. And if you look at the guidelines, it's interesting that the guidelines are regularly used. And if you look at uh, how often there are page views of the opportunistic infection guidelines, there are almost 500,000 page views uh, per year of the opportunistic infection guidelines. So that gives you an indication that people still are dealing with opportunistic infections. And the question is, what pages are they actually looking at? So they're obviously looking at what's new, but pneumocystis, toxo, and MAC are still the leading causes, uh, the leading uh, topics that people look at. So again, I think the traditional uh, opportunistic infections are still what people are dealing with in the community, and this is still what they uh, look to the uh, guidelines for. Now, one of the questions uh, with the guidelines is, how do we uh, update the guidelines uh, as the epidemic evolves? One of the problems with opportunistic infections is that there are very few um, uh, trials being done these days, and as diagnostics and therapy exchange, the questions are, how do we change these and make recommendations that are based on data 
in an era where there are not the same kind of controlled trials that there were in the 1980s and 90s? And the answer is we really can't wait for trials. We have to use observational data, uh, hopefully that's uh, been validated in other populations, and to use it uh, for uh, uh, updating the, the recommendations. And I'd like to make uh, some points about some of the topics that are most often discussed uh, in the guidelines. So what are the seven most commonly asked questions uh, that come to the guidelines committee? Well, the first is, what about the changes in the way we diagnose uh, uh, opportunistic infections? In more and more uh, of the situations, the laboratory is not going to do an immunofluorescence for pneumocystis. It may not even do a, a, a cryptogen. Uh, it's a PCR diagnosis. And the question is, how uh, comfortable are we, or what is the data uh, that the PCR is a sensitive and specific indication if we use it for respiratory specimens, spinal fluid, stool. Well, most of the experience we have is with upper respiratory and using the BioFire platform, which many hospitals have. So just to ask you, uh, or not to ask a question, but to pose a, uh, a situation, a 35-year-old patient recently diagnosed with HIV, a Nader CD4 count of 90, has been on a antiretroviral regimen based on dolutegravir. He presents with low-grade fever and cough, and you want to get a biofire panel. Now, the first issue with a biofire panel is you want to get an appropriate specimen. A nasal swab is not an appropriate specimen. So you get a nasopharyngeal swab so that you get the cells that are in the uh, posterior retropharynx. And what you're going to get is you're going to get one of these pathogens uh, that are seen here. Uh, and the question is, if you get mycoplasma, if you get chlamydia, uh, if you get coronavirus, how convinced are you that this is the cause of the syndrome that you're dealing with? I think in most situations, uh, I th uh, you can be relatively confident. But let's just ask if 60 minutes later the lab calls were the results, which of the following results would be most convincing evidence that the identified pathogen is the only cause of the respiratory syndrome? May I, would you be convinced with any of the results that you see, with none of the results, or it depends? And actually, maybe since we're a little bit behind time, Scott, we'll just move ahead. I think the point is, I think with the upper respiratory uh, panel, I think those uh, pathogens all are relatively convincing that somebody has an upper respiratory infection or a lower uh, respiratory infection like bronchitis, that if you get mycoplasma, if you get influenza, you can be pretty confident that that is the, the source of the infection. But I think you also have to realize that there is more and more data that people with low CD4 counts can be persistent shedders for some of these organisms. So that if they had a respiratory infection three weeks ago or six weeks ago, the question is, is what you're finding the cause of what they have now, or is it the cause of what they had before. But this is more of a problem if you look at lower respiratory uh, uh, pathogens. So let's say you have a 35-year-old patient who was recently diagnosed with HIV, presents with low-grade fever and cough, and a pulmonologist performs a BAL on a respiratory tract panel. Uh, the PCR results are available in uh, 60 minutes. Uh, what is likely coming in the near future is a lower respiratory uh, uh, panel 
which has molds, including Aspergillus and Mucor, yeast involving, uh, including Cryptococcus, pneumocystis, herpes viruses, and Legionella. And the question is, if you get these results, which ones would convince you that somebody who has a severe uh, lower respiratory infection, in fact, has uh, pathology due to the organism that's identified? So let's answer this question. If the result comes back as positive for pneumocystis or CMV or cryptococcus or toxa or coronavirus, which one would, be you, would convince you that, that is the cause of the pulmonary pathology that you're dealing with? So let's answer that. Well, it's interesting. Uh, this isn't what I uh, would have predicted, but to me, the one, and this, the point I'm making may be a little bit obscure, but the one pathogen here that doesn't belong in the pulmonary tract as a latent organism is toxoplasma. So that would be the only one that absolutely convinced me that that was the cause of the pulmonary pathology. And the point I'm trying to make is the following, that if you look at those organisms, the lower the CD4 count, the more likely somebody is to be colonized with pneumocystis, with CMV, uh, even with um, uh, other herpes viruses. So the problem specifically with pneumocystis is you don't know whether somebody is colonized with pneumocystis or whether they have uh, disease due to pneumocystis. The PCRs are qualitative. The quantitative nature is not very useful. So. You know that this is a sensitive test. To me, for pneumocystis, the test is very useful as a negative test. Its negative predictive value is very good. Its positive predictive value is not very good. So the point is, if you see pneumocystis, if you see CMV, you don't really know if that's the cause of the disease. And the fact is, we know that CMV in patients with HIV almost never causes pulmonary disease. So. As we evolve into the era of PCR diagnostics, one of the things that the guidelines are struggling with is if your laboratory no longer does immunofluorescence for uh, 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 pneumocystis, how do you make a diagnosis if you only do PCR? And I don't have an answer to that because, again, I don't know how to make a distinction between colonization and disease. You have to be very uh, careful to consider the fact that there is some other cause other than pneumocystis. So these are very sensitive. They're good for ruling out pathogens. But some pathogens, like CMV, you're going to get a positive result for, and yet it's unlikely to be the cause in a patient with HIV of pulmonary disease. If you get somebody who has a positive signal for Aspergillus or for Cryptococcus, organisms that are known to colonize the respiratory tract, the question is, again, are those colonizers, are those, in fact, the cause? And I think in terms of the guidelines, we don't know at this point what recommendation to give. So that, those are changes still to come. But the point here is just to remind you that as we change into PCR diagnostics, the specificity of that for indicating the cause of the pathology, I think, is uh, problematic. And this is especially true with other biofire platforms like uh, stool, where just because you find a trace um, uh, a signal for a pathogen doesn't mean that that's the cause of the syndrome that you're dealing with. So PCR diagnostics, I think, are a real problem in terms of how to interpret them in 2018. So let's go to a different issue, MAC prophylaxis. One of the things that's been um, 
uh, I think confusing is if you look at the IASUSA guidelines, they do not recommend uh, primary mycobacterium avium prophylaxis, whereas the NIH, CDC, IDSA guidelines do. So here's a question for you. How many of you currently prescribe MAC prophylaxis for patients with newly diagnosed HIV were ready to start antiretroviral therapy and with CD4 count under 50 or 100? So let's see what the answer is. So 65% of you still do it. And again, that is what the guideline shows, so that uh, I think that that's, uh, uh, that is uh, a reasonable response. The guidelines are going to change, though, in the very near future, and they're going to change based on several pieces of data. The question really is, how often are we seeing MAC in 2018, and what's the morbidity and mortality that MAC causes in the current era? I think everybody is aware of the fact that if you look at databases, and this is some old data from the Moore Clinic at Hopkins, the amount of MAC has declined even before MAC prophylaxis became recommended in 1995, and even before we started using the active antiretroviral uh, regimens we have. I think nobody completely understands why that uh, uh, started to go down before those interventions. But over the last few years in the United States, we've been seeing less and less mycobacterium. And if you look at larger databases, the green, which is uh, in the middle of the pack there, is, micro is mostly mycobacterium avium. And whereas the amount of decline is not as dramatic as pneumocystis, the number of cases has still gone down by about 45%. There's an interesting study by Kate Bukaz uh, from HOPS in, H uh, in AIDS patient care in 2014 in which she looked at 369 patients with uh, CD4 counts uh, uh, under 50 and looked specifically at how many people developed mycobacterium avium. And she included those who had MAC prophylaxis and those who did not have uh, MAC prophylaxis. And there are no cases of MAC that occurred. So even in the HOP study with CD4 counts under 50, they saw very little mycobacterium avium in patients who started antiretroviral therapy. So again, two signals that there is less HIV, one before the era of, uh, I'm sorry, there's uh, less mycobacterium avium, uh, one that started before the era of active antiretroviral therapy, another that indicated that once you start antiretroviral therapy, the likelihood of seeing uh, mycobacterium avium, whether you start MAC prophylaxis or not, is extremely low. The third piece of evidence is if you look at the mortality due to mycobacterium avium, if you look at this data from San Francisco from 1981 to 2012, you can see that for each opportunistic uh, infection, the mortality has gone down over time depending on whether you're on one antiretroviral drug, two antiretroviral drugs, or the best result was obviously those who were on uh, combination therapy. And while if you look at the lower left there, you can see that um, there are still deaths in patients who present with mycobacterium avium complex. The majority of those cases are not due to mycobacterium avium, they're due to something else. 
So based on the fact that we're seeing less mycobacterium uh, avium complex in the United States, that those who start antiretroviral therapy appear to have very little mycobacterium avium disease, whether they're on prophylaxis or not, and the fact that we're managing disease better, the recommendation that's going to come out very shortly is that primary mycobacterium avium uh, complex prophylaxis is not recommended if effective antiretroviral started, uh, uh, therapy is uh, initiated immediately and if viral suppression is achieved. Now, obviously, you don't know whether they're going to do well, but I think the recommendation is going to be that as long as you start antiretroviral therapy, that you do not need prophylaxis. So that is a change that you should consider in terms of your practice uh, in the future. Another, there are two issues about cryptococcus that came up uh, at uh, uh, the CROI meeting. Uh, one was why the recommendations in the United States about cryptococcal antigen screening are different from what WHO recommends. I think as many of you who practice internationally recognize that since 2011, WHO has recommended that screening for cryptoantigen uh, followed by preemptive antifungal therapy uh, is recommended for those who have CD4 counts under 100. Now, that obviously is focused on the fact that, number one, there's a lot more cryptococcal disease, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and that there is good data that those who do not have their cryptococcal disease treated do not do as well as those whose antigenemia is not treated. The question is, does this pertain to the United States? Uh, outside the United States, most of the places that advocate screening are in Africa. And it's interesting that this is a slide that was shown at CROI in which CDC reports their screening programs for cryptococcal antigen starting in many countries. I wasn't aware of the fact that there was one starting in the United States, but they have that indicated in black. But I think it's still an issue, and the guidelines, it's always been, uh, 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 it's always been um, uh, at the discretion of the uh, uh, provider. So the question for you is, how many of you currently screen for, script, for cryptococcal antigen for patients who are newly diagnosed with HIV and have a CD4 count under 50 or 100? So let's answer that. I think that's similar to what we've seen in the past, that uh, screening for cryptococcal antigen has not really caught on in this country. I think that's probably reasonable in that if you look in the United States, that about 4.6% of um, uh, patients with a CD4 count under 50 have a positive cryptantigen. And if you look at the spectrum of how high that cryptantigen goes, there's a spectrum that goes from 1 to 2 to greater than 1 to 1,000. So some people have substantial burdens. What we, what we do know are two things. One is, if somebody is known to have a positive cryptantigen, you ought to do an LP and make sure they don't have cryptococcal uh, meningitis. Uh, what we don't know is, what is the natural history if you fail to treat it? The recommendation of the guideline is that if the CSF is unremarkable and you know the cryptantigen is positive, that fluconazole, 400 milligrams uh, for a, uh, a year, 
is acceptable therapy. If the CSF is unremarkable, you don't need to use uh, amphotericin. But again, the data that this makes a difference in terms of treating asymptomatic cryptogen is still uncertain, and therefore the recommendation is still going to be a B-level recommendation is not going to be mandated. Uh, it's not going to be mandated with a high level of enthusiasm. So again, the potential advantage is that it's possible that early crypt treatment leads to better outcome. That you might be able to reduce the incidence of virus, but there's little evidence in the United States that these outcomes really are achieved by doing monitoring. So that's something that, although it's often a question, is still up in the air. Another question that asked is, for cryptococcal meningitis, are there any recommended regimens that do not include liposomal amphotericin? So I think we all recognize that amphotericin B is the only fungicidal drug. The azoles are all fungostatic. We all recognize that there is good correlation between the rate of decrease in cryptococcal titers in the spinal fluid and outcome. So the question is, can we use something less toxic than amphotericin and achieve the same result? At Croy, there were um, a number of studies that we'll look at in a minute on different doses of fluconazole. There have also been small studies on other azoles, voriconazole, posiconazole. But there's an interesting study at Croy looking at higher-dose fluconazole, and the question is, could doses as high as 2,000 uh, milligrams per day of fluconazole be as effective as amphotericin? And the unfortunate answer is no. If you look at the primary outcome of those with a negative CSF culture, which I think is a good surrogate for survival, uh, you can see that with amphotericin, you have much better results than with fluconazole at any level, whether you use 1,200 milligrams, 600, 1,600 milligrams, or 2,000 milligrams. So the answer is, at this point, for cryptococcal meningitis, you still need to use an amphotericin-based uh, uh, regimen. Flucytosine is still recommended as being the most rapidly fungicidal uh, regimen that's used, although liposomal amphotericin and fluconazole is a close second. Incidentally, steroids are not routinely administered. So as opposed to TB meningitis, uh, it has been shown that if you add empiric dexamethasone to all your patients with cryptococcal meningitis, your outcomes are poorer in terms of both complications uh, and in terms of um, uh, adverse events. So empiric corticosteroids in the absence of evidence of increased intracranial pressure are not recommended. Another issue that's often come up, which is still unresolved, is which zoster vaccine should be used for patients with HIV infection. I think everybody here is aware of the fact that there's a new recombinant adjuvanted uh, uh, um, uh, immunization avail available, so-called Shingrix. The previous live attenuated was not recommended, especially if your CD4 count is under 200. There is no data at this point on which to base a recommendation to use the uh, new uh, vaccine, although certainly tempting to do so. Uh, there are some data about the safety of this in patients with HIV. There's some data about the immunologic response in patients with HIV, but there's no outcome data, and thus I don't think you're going to see a change in the guidelines for using Shingrix uh, to date. Uh, I was interested to hear that in a IASUSA uh, web webinar yesterday, um, Steve Johnson from Colorado 
recommended it for his patients, and he's going to start using it. Uh, and that may be reasonable to do, but that, not, that is not yet a CDC, ACIP, or an OI guideline recommendation. The next to last issue is toxinencephalitis. As pyrimethamine is harder and harder to find or more and more expensive, the question is, what is your best um, uh, regimen for toxinencephalitis? Is trimethamine sulfur an appropriate initial therapy? Uh, and is it better than atovaquone? The question is, what data do we have? The best data on trimethamine sulfur that we have uh, is a large observational data uh, which um, looked at 83 patients, and although it was not in a comparative trial, the number of failures was very small. They treated both first episodes and recurrent episodes, and the amount of treatment-limiting toxicity was about what you expect with any sulfonamide. So while this was not a comparative trial to sulfur and pyrimethamine, while this was not comparative to uh, atovaquone, this showed good results. There's another similar study, a small controlled trial that shows that uh, trimethamine sulfur has about the same failure rate as sulfur and pyrimethamine. And I think, therefore, the answer is if you can't get pyrimethamine, trimethamine sulfur is still uh, the preferred regimen. Uh, atovaquone is not quite as reliable in that the time to steady state results is three to four days. And the absorption can be erratic if the patient's not taking uh, uh, a high-fat diet. So trimethamine sulfur is an appropriate alternative if you can't get uh, uh, pyrimethamine uh, for your patients. So again, pyrimethamine uh, and sulfur or pyrimethamine clinda are the preferred regimens. Trimethamine sulfur is the highest rated alternative. Atovacone, uh, with or without uh, another drug, is adequate but probably not as good as trimethamine sulfur. And the last issue is, what about hepatitis A? There are many people who ask whether hepatitis A is an opportunistic infection. I think everybody is aware of the fact that there was an outbreak in California and then several uh, outbreaks in other states of hepatitis A. And while some of the patients had HIV, I think what's clear is that most of the cases involve patients who uh, were injection drug users were MSMs or who had poor sanitation. So this was not related to HIV. The major risk factors were HPV and, HIV and HCV in terms of correlates of hospitalization or deaths. So while this was a big outbreak, there's no evidence that this occurs more often in patients with HIV. There's no evidence that this is more severe in patients with HIV. And therefore, this is not really an opportunistic infection and therefore doesn't really belong in the opportunity infection guideline. So with that, I'd like to see if there are any questions. I think that's what's new in terms of opportunity infections, uh, and uh, we'll see if there are a few questions before moving on. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Henry. Um, maybe I'll kick it off while I wait for questions. Um, there's two microphones here if you'd like to go up um, and ask yourself, but let's, let's dig a little bit to the MAC prophylaxis question, because there is a difference between the guidelines. And I'll just say that from, because I, I had participated in the ISUSA guideline process, and part of the rationale was in addition to what you showed in terms of not much in the way of cases, but if you go back to the original study that was done through the ACTG in the 90s, um, there was a requirement that once you, it was a randomized trial of 
prophylaxis versus not. And there was a mortality difference. Again, this is before the heart era. There was a mortality difference. But the study required definitive proof of MAC before you could treat, right? So that meant sometimes a four to six week delay in initiating anti-MAC therapy where a number of us back in that era were, if we thought it looked like MAC and it was headed that way, we would just empirically treat while we waited for data. And my personal thought was that maybe that's that delay that added to the mortality. So you put that all together and you can say, well, we don't see that much. The virus is really what's causing the immune deficiency. And then the study itself um, wasn't flawed. It was just more precise in a way, but it, it might have added to that. So that was another reason. Could, you want to try to defend uh, keeping on with MAC prophylaxis? Well, you know, I think one of the issues that we're coming to grips with in the guidelines is the guidelines are supposed to be based on data. And one of the things we've again struggled on is when there's not definitive data, do we change the guidelines anyway? In the 80s and 90s, when there were uh, controlled trials, I think we could have the luxury of saying we want to see a trial. Now that there aren't, I think we have to use, again, more plausibility, logic, and observation. Uh, otherwise, um, I think the guidelines are going to be uh, irrelevant. So we probably should have changed this a number of years ago. I think we're going to pull the uh, trigger now, and I think in the future we're going to just gonna have to use more observational data and accept that that's the best we can do. Yeah, so I have a similar question that has to do with the recombinant uh, zoster vaccine um, and requiring a trial in HIV patients um, uh, in order to put it on the guidelines. So if we have a new influenza vaccine that's effective, um, you know, uh, uh, you're going to wait for a, um, a trial before, uh, in specifically in HIV patients, before you would put it on the guidelines. It just seems, you know, I could see putting saying as long as the person's suppressed and they're, you know, uh, um, but but it, and it's a recombinant vaccine. It clearly works. Um, why why would you not put it in the guidelines? Well, you can always count on your friends to ask you difficult questions. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think that's, that's uh, what I was trying to imply, the fact that you have to use data from other patient populations. Right. You have to use observational data, and you have to be able, you have to be willing then to make a change, which 20 years ago we would have been reluctant sure. to do. So I think uh, there's one caveat I'll get to in a moment. Yes, I think we should do that. One of the problems is that this is a guideline that is sponsored by three organizations, <laughs> NIH, uh, IDSA, and CDC. So the CDC is not eager to sign off on this unless they themselves have made the same recommendation. So that does hamstring us a little bit. Right. So I suspect what you're going to say, what you're going to see is that many clinicians would use the Shingrix vaccine, and I think until CDC has enough data to make their recommendation, it won't be an A1 recommendation, but you're right. It makes no sense to wait for uh, a specific trial if there's no reason to think that it wouldn't be as effective or safer than what you're currently using. So other questions here. Um, a lot of these are related to vaccine. Um, so the question is, uh, although hep A is not an OI per se, um, do you still recommend a hepatitis A vaccine for MSM? I think, the, I think the answer is, you know, if you have a patient population at risk, yes, you should uh, immunize them uh, for uh, uh, that. And we know that MSM is clearly a risk for hepatitis A, so the answer is yes. 
This is related to the Nasiria meningitis uh, vaccine. Uh, so a change to vaccinate all HIV patients. Are, are older non-MSM patients really at risk? I would see whether there's anybody in the audience who has data on that. I don't know of any risk outside of MSMs. Um, so I guess you could make the argument that that's the only population you look at, but that's not the ACIP uh, recommendation. It could be for the, for the older patients who are going back to school and living in a dorm, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, um, the RECs, we're, going to, we're digging back into MAC prophylaxis. So the RECs for MAC prophylaxis also include a non-virally suppressed individual. So I guess that would be a nuance, wouldn't it? So the ISUSA guidelines are assuming that people will be put on antiretroviral therapy and in the course of becoming, um, going to undetectable, that they would be at minimal risk, if probably no risk. Uh, so what about people not on anti-ARV therapy or not suppressed? Yeah, I think in any individual uh, patient, you need to make a, uh, an individual judgment. But I think the discussion sort of went like this that if you're not virally suppressed, uh, there's a high likelihood that you're not taking your antiretroviral drugs uh, on a regular basis. So the question is, how many of those people are going to take their MAC prophylaxis if you prescribe it? So the presumption was that was a very small population. But I guess we could all imagine that there's some patients who have, not, who have now gotten uh, religion who are taking their antiretrovirals and trying to get uh, suppressed so that maybe those patients might uh, benefit from MAC prophylaxis. But I think that's a fairly small population. I don't know, Mike, whether you have any patients who would fit into that, but I think that's a, a pretty small uh, group. I think, you know, the logic would be that, you're right, it is a small group, but if there's someone who I'm struggling with to get on ARV therapy and they've got a low CD4 count, I'm going to try to get them on, for sure, PCP prophylaxis, and in that setting, CD4 count less than 50, say, uh, I might try to get them on MAC prophylaxis, but there's a huge catch-22, right? Because the number one therapy you'd like, if they could just take one pill, would be antiretroviral therapy. So they're not taking that, but you're going to give them two other pills to take. Eh, I don't know if that's going to work. But um, it, it, I think another thing to underscore here is that guidelines are guidance, not directives, right? At the end of the day, um, they're not telling you what to do as a provider. You're still engaged. You're the one who's making the decision. It's just there to say as a rule, as a general rule, this is kind of what's recommended, but it doesn't mean that it's true in all patients, and that's where we have to come in as providers and use judgment, and uh, I think we do a pretty good job of that. Um, another question, I think this well, is good. Let me just yeah. make one point about yeah. that. But also, again, recognize that this is, this is different from pneumocystis, because pneumocystis is still, still very common if your CD4 count is under 200 or under 100. MAC is not common. So again, the question is, what is the benefit of adding another drug for a common disease for this benefit? What's the benefit of adding it for an uncommon disease? I think the, the uh, uh, discussion was that there is not that much benefit. So again, this is a value judgment without, uh, that's not based on a clinical trial. Then this is going to require you to dig back into your archives. Um, the question is, when somebody is on MAC prophylaxis with a macrolide, what is the relative incidence of MAC-resistant res organisms that are macrolide-resistant? In other words, back in the day when we 
would use a lot, and we didn't have quite as good of antiretroviral therapy. You put somebody on MAC prophylaxis, and then they develop MAC. Um, do you remember how many of those actually had resistant macrolide stuff? I kind of do, but I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't remember, but there are two debates. One is that one of the debates was if you're resistant to macrolide, should you include it in your regimen anyway? Uh, but presumably you would then add other drugs that are active, and nobody has come up with a regimen that has been tested in a trial to show that one three-drug regimen or four-drug regimen is uh, more effective than another for a clarithromycin-resistant organism. But there were people who broke through. There were people who were resistant, but I can't quote you what the number was. There's also, it is said in some series that there's up to 17% of primary MAC isolates that are resistant. There is debate about whether or not that is an accurate figure. I think most of the studies that I can recall seeing from two decades ago were more in the 3 to 5% range. But again, there are, uh, there's a, a variety of different um, uh, figures that have been quoted. But again, if you're clarithromycin resistant and you're treating disease, you do what you do with MDRTB. You look for susceptible drugs. You add some that you think the patient will uh, tolerate. And there's very little data to say which regimen is better than another. Yeah, I, I agree. In the, um, I think the rule still applies that we used back in the day, and that is someone shows up with advanced disease late and they're coming into the hospital, whatever. If you have a sense that they might have MAC, then you, tr you give them treatment while you work it up, right? So you're not going to just drop in a, a clarithromycin or azithromycin alone for fear of that happening. And, uh, but I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen a primary case of MAC in a long time. Um, it, I'm sure it's been there and I might have missed it, maybe, but it just doesn't seem to happen like we used to see. Um, well, that could be interesting. Uh, how many people in the audience have seen a new case of MAC in the last year? Okay, must be the water. <laughs> well, that, that's probably a, a half dozen people. Literally. <laughs> right. Okay, so it's not gone. Um, we got that. All right. Um, that's the question. Now, there, there are a lot of folks who have come in a little bit later and looking for spots. There are a lot of empty seats. I know it's, you know, you got to walk in front and sit down, but there's some really great seats up front. Uh, if this were Broadway, you'd be clamoring for that. If this were Hamilton, you'd be paying $1,000. Um, this isn't Hamilton, although that hotel's across the street. Um, so, uh, and we're expecting, I think, about another 30 or 40 folks who are probably stuck in the metro or some other place.